millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. We've already talked about some of the icons of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. Some familiar names crop up. We've already talked about Theodore Roosevelt, Margaret Sanger, the Bradley Martins, the famous and the infamous. Today, we're going to discuss the era's most iconic intellectual, W.E.B. Du Bois, and no better time as critical race theory has become very much a part of the national conversation. It's hard to know where to start with Du Bois. There's so much of him. He lived for 95 years, from 1868, only a few years after the Civil War, to 1963. In fact, Martin Luther King mentions in his Eye of a Dream speech at the very beginning, Du Bois, who died the day before the March on Washington culminated. During his 95 years, he published dozens of books, history, philosophy, sociology, fiction, autobiographies. In fact, he publishes three autobiographies. He also edited several scholarly journals. Some of his most famous works are The Souls of Black Folk. He wrote a biography of abolitionist John Brown, and he wrote Black Reconstruction in America. And if publishing didn't keep him busy, Du Bois also co-founded the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the legal pillar of the civil rights movement in the 20th century. As chief of publicity for the NAACP, he editorialized on lynching, labor disputes, suffrage, miscegenation laws, black culture, and socialism. His ideas permeate American concepts of identity, and perhaps more than any other American philosopher, Du Bois practiced what he preached as a peace activist, a civil rights activist, a socialist, anti-racist, and anti-imperialist. Here's the other thing. Du Bois was not merely an American icon. He was a global icon. He clashed with Marcus Garvey over Pan-Africanism. He briefly served as the American minister to Liberia, and in 1917, he visited the nascent Soviet Union. Over his lifetime, he rubbed shoulders with China's Mao Zedong, Russia's Nikita Khrushchev, and Ghana's Kwame Nkrumah. No intellectual of the early 20th century looms quite as large, and to help us understand this towering figure, I'm joined by Professor Raylan Rabaka. Professor Rabaka is Professor of African, African American, and Caribbean Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, and someone like Du Bois who has an intellect that matches his activism. Let me explain. Uh, Professor Rabaka is the author of dozens of books on African-American thought, including some deep dives into the philosophy of Du Bois, Amilcar Cabral, Franz Fanon, and others. But he also leads a brand new center of African and African-American studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. 
If you listen to him, you just you hear how his work transcends disciplines. Professor Rabaka explains how power and social forces work through culture and the intersectionality of identity. Imagine learning about African-American history through hip-hop or through the poetry of Langston Hughes. It's a powerful approach to the past, and I know that listeners are going to be as excited when they get a taste of Professor Rabaka's talent for expression. He himself has many other talents. He's a musician, a spoken word artist, and if only I had more time, I would have spent the rest of the show talking about connections from spirituals to Muddy Waters to Kanye West. Well, a warm welcome to the show, Professor Rabaka. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me uh, here today. Well, I think Du Bois is such an important figure. We've talked a little bit about people like Margaret Sanger, Theodore Roosevelt. Du Bois is right in there as one of those towering fig figures of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. And, and two things struck me when I was rereading Du Bois ahead of our conversation. One was that he had this vocation as an educator. And the other thing was that he started high school in 1877, which is the year that we often say is the beginning of the Gilded Age. And so I was wondering, what were his inspirations as a young high schooler? You know, is it the kids on the schoolyard? Is it the stuff that he's reading? Where does he get his initial sort of wellspring of ideas? His mom. Um, I think growing up in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, being the only African-American in all his grades, right? I think that that kind of racial alienation, uh, cultural isolation had a significant impact on him. Um, there were some progressive, open-minded, uh, well-to-do white folks in Great Barrington, Massachusetts who really wanted to help um, out uh, and everything. And so this is a very pivotal period, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, in Du Bois's life. As you know, he grew up incredibly poor. His his, his mother was a domestic worker. Uh, she was a washerwoman. She cleaned uh, the town, the wealthy white townsfolks' houses and, and washed their laundry and everything. And so understanding not only his race, but his working class roots, I think that would be incredibly important. And in fact, in his uh, autobiography, Du Bois says that he was more conscious of his class before he was his race. It wasn't until uh, that fateful day that he writes about in uh, The Souls of Black Folk where uh, they were exchanging Valentine's Day cards and he gave his card to, uh, he, he calls her a tall newcomer uh, in The Souls of Black Folk, a tall, lanky, a newcomer, a uh, young girl uh, that he gave and she rebuffed Du Bois and he was devastated and he says it was then that the veil fell uh, on his life, that veil, that, in, that powerful metaphor throughout the souls of black folk where he says, you know, he realized that there was the world, you know, that he lived in, he uh, inhabited. And then there was that other world, meaning, of course, the, the white world. So Du Bois is one of those figures who understands that there's a black and the white world, but he didn't just come out of his mother's womb you know, talking black and thinking like an African-American. No, there's certain experiences. And I think this is where we get into uh, the work of one of my colleagues, Lewis Gordon, who has the concept of black existentialism. So that existential moment uh, that black folk in America almost invariably have, what does it mean to be black in a white dominated world? Especially when most of the people in power, they're not even conscious. That they're, that they're dominating the world. They don't want you to know <laughs> that they're dominating the world. And so Du Bois is one of those early critical race figures who actually sort of begins to think through blackness in America, all the associations, positive and negative, that go on 
with blackness in uh, America. But yes, his his uh, early education, his K through 12 experience, much like my own, was something that was fraught with tragedy, but also triumphs. I mean, that's so it's it's paints a really rich picture because you've got you've got class there, which you say comes first almost. You've got presumably you've got a gender dynamic there too, because you're talking about his mom. I mean, how did women affect uh, 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 his upbringing, his education? How what what influence did women have other than this um, this schoolgirl? I mean, was it a powerful influence? A- absolutely, his mother. Um, again, he's an only child. His father is what would be considered a delinquent dad, so an absentee father of of Haitian uh, descent. It's just really interesting to sort of think about how his mother, whatever the the misery, whatever her experiences of an unfulfilled life, if you will, she put them into her son, you know, her hopes, her dreams, her aspirations. And so education was one of those um, avenues that she really saw young Willie, as she referred to him, uh, young Willie could use to education is a passport. This is what my mother taught me, you know, growing up the way I did, where I did. uh, Education was a passport and you could literally use it as a tool to not simply transform yourself, but transform society, right? And in fact, when Du Bois's mother passed away on March 23rd, 1884, Du Bois is literally taken on by the women of the Black Women's Club movement they really began, so these church women began to sort of see Du Bois as this orphan sort of figure. Uh, He's only 16 years old when his mother passes. So he has all of these surrogate mothers in an organization that in 1895, they're going to sort of consolidate and it is called the National Association of Colored Women. So Du Bois, most people don't realize it because they don't understand what happens when you begin to look at African-American history and culture from a black feminist point of view, actually Du Bois, much like myself, has incredibly black feminist origins. And his early evolution is incredibly, it's centered. You can't understand Du Bois unless to a certain extent you understand his relationship to the National Association of Colored Women. These are the uh, church ladies. These are the sisters that help him go from high school to Fisk University, to Harvard, to the University of Berlin and back to Harvard. How does somebody who's essentially an orphan end up with two BAs, right? Essentially two MAs, essentially two PhDs by the time he's 27 years old and he does all of this by, by 1895. Mike, I don't know if y'all can hear me in here today. I mean, this is, this is miraculous. No matter what the color of, I mean, talking about in that particular age, you talk about the Gilded Age, this is an astounding story of human achievement, right? And the fact that more people in America don't know more about Du Bois, other than the controversies and the conflicts and the, you know, and the little stench and stain that they love to go and search for in iconic figures' lives, I find that very strange. But again, going back to this, I mean, it's very, for me, understanding the National Association of Colored Women, which Obviously, colloquially, we call it the Black Women's Club movement. Hey, Mike, listen, do you, do you understand that Du Bois's first publication is in uh, 
a, a black women's club movement journal. I mean, I mean, this is, I mean, when he's 15 years old, his very first publication, they're the ones who gave him space to develop. So without understanding African-American women's history, culture, their politics, their struggle, you're not gonna understand Du Bois's major models beyond Frederick Douglass, beyond Alexander Crummel and so on and so forth. I think that there's a tendency to sort of masculinize Du Bois's biography. And so what I've tried to do in my work is to bring my training in women, gender, and sexuality studies. So not simply my training in African-American studies, but my training in women, gender, sexuality studies to develop a more um, intersectional and interdisciplinary interpretation of Du Bois. In a nutshell, that's what my whole project, my whole relationship with Du Bois is about. I mean, that is, I'm getting excited here just listening to you talk about this because uh, I, I think that the the role of women you, are essential to so many things and they've been written out of history for so many years. We're getting to the point where we're rewriting these stories into history, but you know, the the National Association for the Advancement of Colored Women, is that what it was called? Because that has a certain ring to it, doesn't it? I mean, a little bit of a, well, you know. I mean, it's called the National Association of Colored Women. And so Du Bois is playing mute tribute to his mothers by founding the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. And again, the fact that Anna Julia Cooper, Ida B. Wells, Mary Church Terrell, I mean, all of these are, these are, I just named off essentially the first three presidents of the National Association of Colored. All of them are active members. When Du Bois found, his National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, February the 12th, 1909. So again, this organization had been up and running for a significant, I mean, it was founded in 1895 when they consolidated it. I mean, this is a fascinating period. And if we don't understand the way that they, the National Association of Colored Women was involved in a kind of radical journalism and a kind of black feminist journalism, uh, in a kind of sort of uplift and outreach, right? That was, you know, their core principle. Listen, man, the, 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 the motto of the movement was lifting as we climb. That is the motto of the Black Women's Club movement, lifting as we climb. Du Bois sort of took that and ran with it, but we need to understand his Black feminist roots, right? In order to really understand his later life radicalism. If we don't understand that, we're gonna really sort of miss some key Listen, even when he chartered the NAACP, the signature right next to his to charter it is Ida B. Wells. We all know that Ida B. Wells is the greatest anti-lynching crusader in the history of the United States of America. If you really want to read something, go and read the Red Record by Ida B. Wells, where here's something that in many people's minds disproportionately impacts African-American men, but a woman is the greatest anti-lynching crusader. What impact? Did that have on Du Bois? What was the relationship like between Ida B. Wells and W.E.B. Du Bois, between Du Bois and Anna Julia Cooper? I write about all of this in the books, right? Again, it's fraught with tension. Are there conflicts? And, you know, I mean, does, does Du Bois's masculinism sometimes play itself out in his relationships with these iconic and incredible figures? Yes, indeed, it does. Well, and I was going to say, there must be some conflict there as well with motherhood and activism and you know uh you know some, some of these women are mothers and they're there there's a guilt associated with being away from their kids and doing the traditional roles that a mother might do at that time um and yet they are but they're that uplift idea of the willie du bois is i mean this is this is what they're they're creating a community that's going to 
reshape the intellectual thought of America in the 20th century. And I just think that's that's a story that we don't know enough about with the Du Bois story. Uh, and I could I could talk to you about that for a lot longer, but we only got so much time. So I want to ask you a few other questions about Du Bois's thought in particular, because in those years from, I don't know, the 1890s to the 1920s, we get this just explosion of publications and thought. And obviously he's a, he's a public figure for the National Association for uh, the Advancement of Colored People. If, if we had to do a greatest hits, I know you're, you're a jazz musician. If we had to do the greatest hits of Du Bois in that, in that time period, what are the things that people absolutely need to read and, and know about Du Bois's intellectual thought? I mean, I'm, I'm gonna geek out for you. Um, this is how I structured my recent book, Du Bois, A Critical Introduction, Polity Press 2021. So that was the whole point of me writing the book was that after spending much of my, I mean, since June, I first got exposed to uh, Du Bois uh, in the first grade, it was Black History Month. <laughs> and my first grade teacher, Mrs. Robinson um, had an assignment where she hung out, you know, she passed out these placards, these cards uh, that were bigger than, I mean, they, they were, they were, they were like encyclopedia, like laminated beautiful cards with Black History Month figures. So someone um, got Paul Robeson, someone got Harry Tubman, someone got Frederick Douglass, and I in particular wanted Duke Ellington. But they gave it to somebody, I mean, they gave it to me, they had Billie Holiday, and I mean, you just blew my mind. I was mad, I wanted a jazz musician. She gave me what I thought in my little first grade mind, she gave me a Frenchman. Now, in my little first grade mind, I'm thinking, now, now wait now, it's Black History Month, and I know we're supposed to be talking about Black people. This is like the one, the one day of the year we can finally talk about Black people. And they done gave me a Frenchman? So I strolled my little narrow behind up to her desk and said, I can't even believe this. It's Black History Month, and somehow or another, I can't, we can't, I can't even get a Black man? She said, Raylan, if you would read as much as you run your mouth, then maybe you could get somewhere in life. Now go back there and sit down before I call your mama. So I went, you know, I went back there and sat down and I read it. And what I read, uh, Michael, it was astounding. And since that time, there has been, you know, a preoccupation with Du Bois, especially when I found out how close he was with his moms. Um, how instrumental the black church was on his formation and his you know, sense of discipline and his core principles. Yeah, and so for me, the greatest hits after studying Du Bois for so long, I would say the Philadelphia Negro, his first, you know, actually, you know what? Let's start with his PhD dissertation, which was published by Harvard University. Uh, the suppression of the African slave trade. Michael, you have to ask yourself, how is it that Du Bois grows up in a predominantly white environment in Great Barrington, Massachusetts? He's the only one in all of his schools. The white folk of the town know that little Willie wants to go to Harvard, but they're not admitting Negroes at this time. So they send him to an HBCU, a historically black college or university, Fisk University, right? Down in Tennessee in the South. He excels there. Ultimately, he still wants to go to Harvard, but they won't accept his degree from Fisk, so he still has to get a second BA. This is extraordinary because if you think about how is it that he's able to gravitate back to African culture and the enslavement of African people, 
I just, I mean, most of his white professors at Harvard, they, they never had an African-American student. And he's doing something that's really quite controversial at the time with his first, with his dissertation. So the suppression of the African slave trade, I think that would be the place to start. Understanding Du Bois's unique social, cultural, political, and economic historiography, right? That is unique at the time, right? So the suppression of the African slave trade, the Philadelphia Negro, his first major publication, University of Pennsylvania Press, in which he inaugurates American sociology, right? It's almost accepted now, almost, right? Some people still ain't checking for Du Bois, but you know, whatever, we're gonna let hang them out to dry. Uh, so everybody knows Du Bois, this is the first major work of empirical social science in the history of the United States of America. So social, empirical, empirical social science begins with uh, Du Bois. After the Philadelphia Negro uh, in 1898, then we go to The Souls of Black Folk, 1903. Obviously, his, I mean, talk about his blockbuster, his greatest hit, if you will. Great, the greatest hit, yeah, yeah. But also probably something that overshadows a lot of the lesser known, like the, how many people are reading The Philadelphia oh, well. Negro? I mean, it is a sociological work. It's, he was asked, was he asked to, to write that? Yes. I mean, am I right in saying oh, that he was commissioned to write that yes. book? And it was about the, the sort of what was going on on the, on the, the you know, the ground in yes. Philadelphia, right? As African-Americans so, yeah. transitioned from uh, enslavement into so-called freedom. And so Du Bois's work, The Philadelphia Negro, is a combination of both history and sociology, also political economy, because that's the department he studied in at the University of Berlin, was the Department of Political Economy. So Du Bois is interdisciplinary before they have a term for it. So before interdisciplinarity, I mean, it takes the rest of America, if not the world, a hundred years to catch up to where Du Bois is at the end of the 19th century. I mean, it's just fascinating to sort of think about how much ground the Philadelphia Negro breaks and sort of looking at the African-American population of Philadelphia, he says, you have an incredible uh, uh, case study here. If you look at the way how many of them come from the South to the North for new opportunities, but when they get to the North, they experience just as much racism. They experience these, the slums and the ghettos and menial, they're, they're, they're quarantined to menial labor is this really freedom? And now you can see the connection between Du Bois and John Hope Franklin, right, from slavery to freedom. So without understanding the depth of Du Bois's, his, the historical dimensions of his work, we're not gonna really be able to understand his sociology because there was no such thing as sociology when Du Bois was working on his PhD. He is that kind of a pioneering figure so most people don't understand. There's no conception of social, at least not in the United States of America. No, it's emerging around the world. It's it's a brand. It's a, it's a really social science as a whole is emerging then, and and that's why I think that book is just so interesting. Is because it's something that I suppose he he was he was at the front line of the understanding about how society actually operates by trying to create a scientific study about what Philadelphia was like. But I, I interrupted you there because I know you were just about to launch into the the souls of black folks, which is. That's, I mean, that's the seminal text, but would you agree with what I'm saying about that almost overshadows a lot of the other stuff that he writes? Absolutely. Well, I mean, if you look at my work, the bulk of my work up until my most recent book on Du Bois is actually focused on Du Bois's work after The Souls of Black Folk. So my whole project has been looking at the 60 years of Du Bois, the six decades of Du Bois's life after The Souls of Black Folk, because I felt like there was so much attention focus on the souls of black folk and the Philadelphia 
Negro that most people never turn any of their attention to uh, the fact that after the souls of black folk, Du Bois writes this incredible book, which I think everybody should read and David Rodiger uh, and them say this starts critical whiteness studies. Uh, but John Brown, he publishes the book John Brown in 1909, the same year he files the NAACP. So in terms of looking at a critical white study. So in my work, uh, Mike, I argue that Du Bois not only lays the foundation for what's called black studies in the 60s, he also lays the foundation for critical white studies. By critical, we mean helping white folks develop a kind of self-reflexivity with their own whiteness, to stop running around here, acting like somehow that they are race-free or race-neutral or that their racial identity and their culture is somehow universal as if it hasn't been superimposed upon everybody else because of racial colonialism. And this is how my work connects with Prince Fanon and the Pan-African movement. But this whole notion, not simply colonialism in some kind of general sense, what happens when, you know, again, I'm a member of a group that was simultaneously racialized and colonized. Du Bois is also one of those figures who points out that the very concept of race was created in Europe. And, and that's where we're at now, am I right? Like in terms of, we're only starting to, I think publicly and uh, understand that whiteness is a construct. People don't, people don't talk about that even on a wide scale in the US or in, in, where in Europe where I live, no one's talking about whiteness except for largely academics and people that are you know, yeah. you know, very well educated, but the general public doesn't talk about whiteness as a construct. And here's Du Bois actually writing a history book about the construct of whiteness. <laughs> and then he has another, doesn't he, he does in, in uh, Dark Water, he's got the souls of white folks. Yeah, the souls right? of white folks, right. Right, which he published the initial version was called The Culture of White Polk. He published that a year after 1910, a year after he published John Brown. So he was working for a decade between, you know, the 1910 publication of The Culture of White Folk and then The Souls of White Folk dropping in Dark Water in 1920. Du Bois is doing this kind of genealogy, this kind of archaeology of whiteness showing, hey, what would happen if we give progressive, liberal-minded white folk some alternative models like the abolitionists who his idol Frederick Douglass worked with. What would happen if we could provide them with some abolitionist figures, not just the sort of the white races, but some of these white folks who really sort of get it, or at least they're trying to get it with respect to race, trying to use their white privilege in progressive ways, John Brown. But most people in this country, uh, in the United States, they've never heard of John Brown, let's be honest. They have never heard of John Brown. I mean, this is, do you know, I have been teaching John Brown in African-American studies for a quarter of a century. And I don't necessarily know if in mainstream history departments or sociology departments or political science departments, I don't even know if they expose their students to John Brown. That is a travesty. And in fact, listen, Michael, can we understand the controversy surrounding critical race theory if we don't understand Du Bois' We have to get into that, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. You see what I'm saying, though? So for me, you know, y'all you, you, can say whatever you want to say, but here in America, there's a lot of brouhaha surrounding critical race theory. But Du Bois, literally, the roots, a lot of the roots of CRT, critical race theory, can be found in Du Bois's discourse. And that's what I find so remarkable about him, because I know that as a historian from this time, you know, that, that writes about this time period, that I might know this, but I, I think the rest of the country and the world needs to remember Du Bois, because this is so cutting edge. Um, 
So there's a, there's another relationship that he has in this period that's really important too, and that's his relationship with Booker T. Washington. And uh, you know they're both the leading sort of uh, intellectual black intellectuals at the time. And so how does that play out? Because it seems in many ways that they're very different, but in some ways it seems like they're very similar as well. Right. This is a thank you. It's a very provocative question. Uh, if I could just say, I think that they are the leading black male. <laughs> figures at the time. Uh, again, I, I, you know, with all due respect, uh, I'd like to point to Mary Church Terrell. I'd like to point to Ida B. Wells and to Anna Julia Cooper and to the women of the National Association of Colored Women, which is going to become uh, the National Council of Negro Women, headed up by Mary McLeod Bethune in the 1930s. So it, it never stops. That is still going on to this day. Most people don't realize it. It is still going on to this day. But to go to Du Bois and Washington. We call this period the Du Bois-Washington debate. And essentially, Du Bois is leading what's called the Niagara Movement. And the reason it's called the Niagara Movement is because they could not meet to have a civil, civil rights assembly or convention or gathering in the United States of America. They had to go to Canada, right, to Niagara Falls, Canada to start. So I mean, it's th this is an odd irony. Civil rights movement, at least the modern day, 20th century civil rights movement begins in another country because of American apartheid. They will not allow African-Americans to congregate. No hotel will allow you to have this kind of convention for Negro rights, right, and everything. And so Du Bois is seen as a hothead. But let me go back. Booker T. Washington in 1895 de delivers this, what's called the Atlanta Compromise, where he tells African-Americans essentially to uh, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, if I can paraphrase, Mr. Washington. And Washington says a lot of things in that address that wealthy uh, white folks would like to hear, that essentially, it, you know, everything's on African-Americans. We no longer need reconstruction. We don't need the Freedmen's Bureau that you know, Negroes can do it for themselves, as Washington says. And so it becomes really kind of interesting that Washington really becomes this conciliatory figure and his thought, Michael, becomes what's called accommodationism. He wants to accommodate the continued uh, white domination of black America, uh, uh, Washington is saying this during a period which is called the Jim Crow era. So I think that's another thing when you talk about the Gilded Age. I think in terms of African American history, we call this the the you know the Jim Crow era, uh, if you will. <clears throat> so it becomes really kind of interesting. The even the, the terminology, how these things are titled, it's going to be very different when you start looking at it from the point of view of an African American historian. And I'm glad you pulled me up on uh, you know saying these. You're right. These are the two leading male intellectuals, but you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois publishes another book in 1915 uh, called The Negro, which is a history of Africa through its places and cultures. And that that aligns also with your work too in trying to think about uh, Africa as well as African-American studies. And of course, this is the, the Pan-African movement is starting to, to really take shape at this, this time as well. So um, tell us a little bit about that. This is really interesting. If I could just fast forward, if I could go back just briefly, in 1911, Du Bois publishes his first novel, right? Quest of the Silver Fleece. Du Bois's work with the Crisis Magazine 
helps him to have a platform with some resources, maybe even not considerable, but he has a platform with the Crisis Magazine, which he starts also in 1911, right? NAACP is founded in 1909. He starts the Crisis Magazine in 1911. It starts out with a very small distribution, but explodes, right? Between 1911 and about 1934, when he, you know, when they force him out of the NAACP. So about a 25 year period, he has this platform where he's exploring the full range and reach of black history, black culture, black arts, black politics, black economics, black religion. And that's what really helps to give Du Bois a deeper internationalist, like what we call black internationalism. So he has that, but realize the reason I asked you to emphasize his dissertation, Du Bois was already doing black internationalism. His dissertation is called The Suppression of the African Slave Trade. Du Bois is Du Bois actually inaugurated or helped to inaugurate what was called at the end of the 19th century, pan-Negroism. So he's already, then they change it to pan-Africanism, right? Because they want to move away from Negro. He didn't call it the souls of Negro folk. He called it the souls of black folk, right? So Du Bois understand that some people are, have all these negative associations with this term. So he's already before black power movement, right? He's already talked about black people, black folk, so on and so forth, very, very provocative. But in, in that work, the Negro, Du Bois is creating connections uh, between continental Africa and the African diaspora. It's very important, this concept of diaspora, the African diaspora, meaning those Africans who literally were um, kidnapped, were uh, 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 enslaved, they went through the Middle Passage, and so now they're scattered all over the world. With this concept of the African diaspora, we could not only talk about my, uh, Professor Michael Gomez's work of, you know, the African diaspora, Paul Gilroy, the Black Atlantic. Paul Gilroy's concept of now, again, Paul Gilroy, who's a Du Bois scholar, by the way, uh, Paul Gilroy, the subtitle of the book talks about double consciousness. Come on, can y'all hear me? So Paul Gilroy says that now anywhere salt water licks the shore, right, of the Atlantic Ocean, there are Black people now because of racial colonization, because of enslavement. So Du Bois is saying Africa is not simply the African continent. Africa is wherever African people are. And he begins to look at African-Americans and their cultural retentions. He begins to look at African-Americans and see how Africanisms free float through their new culture that they've created in the United States of America. And Michael, what I'm talking about right now is for me, if you go back and look at a book Du Bois uh, edited in 1907, it's called The Negro Physique. This is an edited volume, part of the Atlanta University Studies. And Du Bois essentially says those people that are called American Negroes, by which he meant African-Americans, many of us are actually mixed in terms of our biology or physiology or phenotypes are actually mixed with many other groups because of the enslavement 350 years uh, from 1619 to 1865. But, you know, so this period, because of this period of enslavement. So what we call African-American culture is a highly creolized culture. It's, it's, we have a hybrid heritage, but the dominant strain he's saying is those African elements, even though I'm speaking the English language, obviously I'm speaking it very differently than the people you're interacting with every day. Can you hear me, brother Michael? You see what I'm saying? 
So again, there's some elements that we have still retained. So those cultural retentions, and he's saying that actually, that is the profundity of African-American culture. Instead of being embarrassed about your connection to Africa, you ought to celebrate it. And he also, at the end of the souls of black folk, he says, this is one of the greatest contributions, one of the greatest gifts that African-Americans have given to America. You know, I'm also a musician and I'm a musicologist. I teach a course here, University of Colorado Boulder, called African-American Music. And in that course, Brother Michael, we survey 15 forms of African-American music, of black popular music. Michael, I don't know if you can name another group that has created 15 forms of music. We start with the spirituals, we go to the blues, right? We go to jazz, gospel, rhythm and blues, rock and roll. Yes, rock and roll is an African-American. Absolutely you, rock and roll. Heavy metal belongs to you know the blues I mean? and rock and roll. We go from <laughs> rock and roll to soul, to funk, to rap, to neo-soul, right? And we could just keep going, house music, right? Elements and techno. I could do this all day long, but I'm just saying though, there's a reason Du Bois, the last chapter of the souls of black folk is called of the sorrow songs, right? So he ends 14 chapters, but he ends by talking about the music. What is Du Bois saying? And how have I picked that up and incorporated that into my pedagogy? Brother Michael, Du Bois is saying to a certain extent, African-Americans can express through song what they cannot say or convey to America and the world otherwise. They will listen to us sing about our bondage. But if I just come to you and talk about how damaging and traumatic it is to be the descendant, right, of people that were enslaved for 350 years, we experienced another 150 years of Jim Crow segregation in this society. But to sing about it, right, to develop art around it, that is why we also then need to acknowledge Du Bois as one of the impresarios of the Harlem Renaissance. People know more about the Harlem Renaissance than they do that first civil rights movement, which we call the new Negro. The old Negroes were enslaved. The old Negroes were uh, going to acquiesce and you know, Booker T. Booker T. Washington, they said was one of those old Negroes, right? And so the old one was enslaved. They would kowtow, they would, acquiesce, they would, you know, sort of go along to get along. Oh, but Du Bois and Anna Julia Cooper and Ida B. Wells and all of those new Negroes. So now, Brother Michael, can you hear the connection I'm making between the so-called new Negro movement and the Black Power movement? Wait, and the Black Lives Matter movement. You better stop me. I will get excited. I, I, gotta, I gotta get the six degrees of separation from Du Bois to Muddy Waters down to BLM. I mean, it's it's all coming together for me. Um, remind, I, I could talk to you a lot more about the blues. I'd love to talk to you more about the blues and understanding place and how all that matters. Um, but one thing that struck me about what you're saying about um, that 1915 book and about that time period before World War I and after World War I as well, when white people are talking about themselves in terms of identity as well as hyphenated Americans. And there's this sort of crucible of nationalism where if you're hyphenated, you haven't assimilated. 
And Du Bois is dealing with that, isn't he? I mean, the idea of being an African-American is coming of age in that writing that Du Bois is doing. So, and diaspora is important, the violence, the trauma of that is important, but also becoming a American is part of that as well. And, and he grapples with that a bit yes, too, doesn't he, he? Du Bois is a very, very unique figure because Du Bois is somebody who in the 1920s and the 1930s, he's grappling with a couple of different things. He's grappling with cultural pluralism, racial separatism. Cedric Robinson in his famous book argues that he helps to inaugurate black Marxism in the 1930s with his 1935 classic Black Reconstruction, which is our, my favorite book. Most people think it's the souls of black folk. It's actually my favorite book, I would say is Dark Water because I think the germs like 15 years before in 1920, 15 years before he publishes uh, black Reconstruction, you can literally see his trajectory shifts. That as more people are thinking about anarchism, they're thinking about uh, uh, communism and socialism, Du Bois adds an anti-racist dimension to all of this discourse about sort of this new America or this quote unquote American century uh, as David Levering Lewis you know, and them called the 20th century. And so Du Bois is one of those figures who's exploring a lot of different things, but at the same time, Du Bois is also then a kind of radical multiculturalist. He's saying that why should you be asking Irish Americans to let go of their Irish heritage? Why should you ask Mexican Americans to let go of their Mexican heritage? Why should you ask African Americans, which he would call at that time, black Americans or Negro Americans, let go of our African heritage? He's actually saying, and this is something that I, I, I nod to the African-American historian, Benjamin Quarles. He's looking at America as this sort of mosaic, this tapestry of many different cultures coming together. And so from Du Bois, when you think about Du Bois and his contributions to American democracy, Du Bois is actually articulating throughout his discourse, a multiracial, multicultural, multilingual, multireligious, United States of America, and they still haven't caught up to him. They still haven't caught up to him today. I mean, the, I mean, the, talk about prophetic, right? I mean, this is very, he said, in order for America to survive, to really be what America should be, what it ought to be, we're going to have to embrace this kind of multiracialism, multiculturalism, multilingualism, multireligiosity. Can you deny that the NAACP, building on the National Association of Colored Women, helped to inaugurate what is called the civil rights movement in the United States, the modern civil rights movement. So Du Bois not only helps to found American sociology, he helps to lay the foundations for the civil rights movement. This is, I mean, I'm sorry, wait, so the guy is a sociologist and a civil rights, soci, sociology pioneer and a civil rights pioneer too? I'm, I just dropped the mic. I think we can do it. The podcast interview is over, brother. I Hey, I don't drop the don't drop the mic yet because because there's another dimension and you kind of are getting to it there already about the international side of things. When you talk about the modern civil rights movement, Du Bois is I mean, he goes to France after World War One, yeah. right? I mean, with I mean, how many other intellectuals at the time are I mean, Ho Chi Minh is showing up there. You've got you know, a Bolshevism breaking out, and the world is congregating in in Europe at that time, and. Du Bois goes there. You mentioned uh, Nkrumah. You mentioned, I don't think you mentioned, but I know you've mentioned elsewhere in your writings about meeting Khrushchev, meeting uh, yeah. Mao Zedong. I mean, this wasn't just a parochial yeah. figure. He was, he was a, 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 a international heavyweight. I want to say thank you 
to you for bringing it up because the problem is, and this is a major issue within Du Bois studies, Du Bois is internationalism. Please understand that, yes, Du Bois was internationalist, but Du Bois, I think if he might, if he were here today, he might acknowledge some of the missteps that he made, uh, certainly with respect to backing Stalin, right? Or at least, you know, sort of turning uh, a blind eye, if you will. The issue with Mao Zedong, we all know that his trip uh, to meet Mao was incredibly orchestrated. So he didn't see, you know, the famine. He didn't get an opportunity to really, a lot of that's not gonna come out until even, uh, till Du Bois has passed away. Du Bois is one of those figures who made some contributions. He's not perfect. I don't know any man in the United States of, in the world. Did he make a lot of mistakes and missteps? Absolutely, absolutely. But he did, did he also make contributions? Absolutely. Well, I think that's that's great because that leads us to I think your your one of your first books. I don't know if it is your first book or one of your first books, but about how Du Bois, what we can take from him then as a as an intellectual, can maybe help us with some of the problems that we have today. And I, I think yeah. I like him more because he's human and he's false, actually. But but tell us a little bit about how you think we can take the thought of Du Bois and apply it to the problems today, because we have a lot of problems today. And a lot of them are the same as they were 100 years ago. A lot of them are different or in different guises and the context has changed. But ultimately, there are some lessons to learn, right? Absolutely. So the first book was called uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and the Problems of the 21st Century. So you can see what I'm up to. Um, I'm literally trying to show Du Bois's continued relevance, that something is strange that happens when it comes to non-white uh, intellectual icons and figures. People seem to think that their work is only applicable to the epoch in which they're working. That's not the case when it comes to a Emile Durkheim or Max Weber or Karl Marx, right? Or Michel Foucault or a Nietzsche, a Kant, a Schopenhauer, a, a Hegel, right? And so on and so forth. But it, that's a very strange thing. So what I'm trying to do is show that unlike many of the figures I just listed off, where is Karl Marx's full-throated critique of race and racism? Where is Michel Foucault's? Where is Jürgen Habermas, right? Where is the Frankfurt schools? I could go on and on and on. Something is interesting when you start looking at African-American thought and stop thinking of black thought as being always derivative of white thought a whole new archive opens up if we take Du Bois on his own terms, right? And I'm all for talking about how this and that person influenced him, but let's not simply talk about the white influences. Let's make sure to talk about how the National Association of Colored Women influenced Du Bois. So you're not gonna understand Du Bois if you don't understand that. Let's talk about how Frederick Douglass influenced, Frederick Douglass, who was also a black male feminist or a, 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 a womanist, if you will. So he didn't get that from Marx. He didn't get that from all of his European and European American professors. No, 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 no. He got that from the African-American intellectual tradition. Having said that, if you notice the first book, I tackle the ways in which, and I do this also in the most recent book, Du Bois, A Critical Introduction. I talk about the ways in which it's interesting that Du Bois gives us a model for social science. So that's why the first chapter of the, the new book is on the Philadelphia Negro and Du Bois's inauguration of American social science. Then immediately after this model for social science, Du Bois seeks to apply empirical social scientific methods to race and the critique of racism. That had not happened before. Come on, I mean, that's, that's I mean, if Du Bois had did that alone, 
I mean, that would be incredible. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, and it, is, it is incredible that he does that. And then goes on, you know, his career is, it's endless almost. And which is, I mean, which is why I think that book that you write is, and you and, and you rightly bring us back to feminism because it's not just about race. It's, it's right. the intersectionality across all of the problems that we have, they are interconnected. And that's why I think Du Bois remains such a big figure. In fact, I, I feel like you're selling the show here because you know we're, we're looking back a hundred years about why it's important and how it connects to the future. And you, and you were talking about the future then. You were talking about the 21st century, not right. the 20th even. So right. uh, well, no, if, if, I can, if I can jump in here, I think that for me, what's interesting is not simply then, because again, Mike, you have to understand with African-Americans, there's a tendency uh, if I can draw from France Fanon, Black Skin, White Mass, 1952, there's a tendency to overdetermine us based on race and our experience of racism. Du Bois moves beyond that and actually takes up colonialism, right? He critiques colonial. This is how you get, see this toggle between, this parallel between Pan-Africanism and colonialism. So talk about that internationalist dimension in Du Bois's work. He goes on from there to critique patriarchy, right? Male supremacy so on and so forth, and to sort of offer up, if you will, some contributions to what we would call black feminism. I mean, here's, a, here's an early man who's, who's trained, right? Who is, who is raised literally by the National Association of Colored Women. So there are gonna be some, some, some implications for black feminism in Du Bois's work. And then of course, uh, Du Bois, his critique of capitalism and his literally identifying a brand new category within Marxism, racial capitalism, something that a figure like C.L.R. James in The Black Jacobins is going to take up, a figure like Eric Williams in Capitalism and Slavery, 1944, certainly a figure like Cedric Robinson, wait, Angela Davis even before Cedric Robinson, Bell Hooks, Cornell West, Manning Marable, I could go on and on, there's a whole tradition, and these are just the African Americans, I haven't brought up Emile Cabral, France Fanon, the Negritude Movement, the Creolite Movement, wait, the Haitian Renaissance, Right, which was mirroring the Harlem Renaissance. I could do this. So the internationalism that goes on, for me, the black internationalism is quite profound, uh, to be perfectly honest with you. Kamir, I have to say, I, I could talk to you for ages. We we haven't even scratched the surface here. Yeah. I know you yeah. know that. I just want everyone yeah. out there to know we haven't talked that much about the NAACP. We haven't yeah. talked that much about Du Bois being one of America's best publicists. We haven't talked about Du Bois running for senator when he got older. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's a ton of things that we could we could pick up and talk about. But it has been an honor and a privilege to speak with you, Professor Rabaka. Uh, honestly, you have so much to give. And, and some of us have jobs as historians or <laughs> academics. Others of us have causes, right? <laughs> uh, so I wish you the best with the cause. Hey, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.